Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. From the Hilton Hotel in downtown Toronto, welcome to the continuation of the 112th season of the Empire Club of Canada. For those of you just joining us through either our webcast or our podcast or on Rogers Television, welcome to our meeting today. Now, before our distinguished speaker is introduced, it gives me great pleasure to introduce you to the members of our head table today. And I'd ask that each guest rise for a brief moment and be seated as your name is called. And I'd ask, please, that the audience refrain from applause until all head table guests have been introduced. So, starting on your far right, Mr. Noble Chamar, partner, Castles, Brock and Blackwell, LLP, member of the board of directors, LCBO, and most importantly, a past president of the Empire Club of Canada. Mr. Jim Hines, director, Hydro One Limited, former chair, independent electricity system operators of Ontario. Mr. Alatanous, CEO, BST Canada, and member of the BST Group. Ms. Nancy Kroitoru, President and CEO, Food and Consumer Products of Canada. Mr. Harrell Locker, President of Pit Cry Investments and former Director General of the Prime Minister's Office of Israel. Mr. Steve Zipperstein, Chief Legal Officer, BlackBerry Limited. Now, on your far left, Mr. John Campion, partner, Faskin Martineau, and a past president of the Empire Club of Canada. Ms. Laurie Shapiro, the CEO of Schwartz-Sereisman Group. The Honorable Michael Chan, Minister of Citizenship, Immigration, and International Trade for the province of Ontario. Mr. David Mansell, the managing director of Onyx. Her Excellency Vivian Berkovich, the Canadian Ambassador to Israel. And my name is Gordon McIver. I'm the Executive Director of the National Executive Forum on Public Property and the President of the Empire Club. Ladies and gentlemen, your head table. I'd also like to acknowledge the presence today of the Israeli Consul General to Toronto, DJ Shniwis and uh, who we had the honor of hearing from a couple of years ago. So, Consul General, welcome. Good to have you with us. And I would be remiss if I did not also recognize former Federal Cabinet Minister Chris Alexander, who joins us today. Welcome. And before we start, ladies and gentlemen, you each have cards on your table. Uh, Following the ambassador's speech today, she will take a few questions. So if you do have a question, write it down, put your hand up, and someone will come and get it. There's probably no one in this audience today that's unaware of the very long and abiding friendship that exists between Canada and Israel. Our relationship goes back, in fact, to the very beginning. When, in 1947, Canada was represented on the United Nations Special Committee on Palestine and was one of the 33 countries that voted in favour of the UN Partition Resolution that year, which led to the establishment of the State of Israel. Our country granted de facto recognition to Israel the following year and full de jure recognition in 1949, immediately accepting Israel's first Consul General to Canada. We opened our embassy in Tel Aviv in 1953, although our first Canadian ambassador was only appointed to that posting in 1958. Israel's first Prime Minister, David Ben-Gurion, made an official visit to Canada in May of 1961, and since that time, officials from both countries have visited very frequently. We are good friends and allies, to be sure, but we're also trading partners. And the trade mission that our Premier is leading there this spring, along with, with Minister Chen, will seek to grow what has been a politically and culturally significant trade relationship, which in dollar amounts is still largely under-leveraged. One of the things that the Premier and her delegates will be focused on is some of the remarkable innovation that comes out of this country that is increasingly known as a startup nation, investing over two times more than Canada does of its gross domestic product each year in research and development. Whether it's delivering breakthroughs in electric vehicles or doing research into the benefits of of marijuana in treating serious medical conditions. Israel is ahead of the curve in R&D and deserves our full attention here in Canada. Now, to be fair, the Empire Club of Canada has always profiled the relationship between our two nations going back to 1947. 
And our speakers have often juxtaposed the surprising dichotomy between the old and the new, between tradition and state-of-the-art technology and science. Shortly after the new state began to take its place on the world stage, we welcomed to this podium a famous journalist of her day, Margaret Aiken, maybe some of you remember her, who had just returned from a trip to the new country. Ms. Aiken had one of the most popular columns in the country in the Toronto Telegraph newspaper and had a huge following for that time. In a speech entitled, The Birth of a Nation, she captures the mood of 1949 Israel, <clears throat> which, as it began to establish an international identity with a people who were as filled with resolve as they were creativity, a people who knew that this new chapter in human history was of extraordinary consequence, and as a result, the only option was success. Here's a quote from that memorable speech. So now there is peace in Palestine. There is peace, but I believe it will be a long, long time before conditions become settled and peaceful. There are 400,000 Arabs who fled the country, clamoring to get back in. There are at least another 400,000 homeless European Jews waiting with invincible hope and eagerness to get into Palestine. There's a housing shortage in Israel to beat all housing shortages. There's a vast desert to the south to be irrigated and cultivated into fertile land. There's rocky, barren hills in the north to be cleared and cultivated. I tell you, there's so much to be done in the land of Israel. The mere thought of it leaves one in a state of breathless, wide-eyed wonder. Now, our guest today is one of the players who is following up in the wake of this wide-eyed wonder to help Canada and Israel optimize their friendship of almost six decades, to ensure that our country continues to leverage partnerships, remain a strong ally and friend, and identify countless opportunities that can contribute to strengthening both countries. She's been our ambassador in Tel Aviv for just over two years, but when you read her very impressive resume, you will conclude that her entire professional path was leading her to this posting. Besides practicing law, advising Ontario's finance minister, assisting the Government of Canada with First Nations claim-related negotiations, and acting as general counsel and corporate secretary to a major Canadian insurance company, she also developed a great expertise on Israel as far back as 35 years ago when she studied at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem and later wrote a weekly column on Israel and Mideast issues for the Toronto Star, following indeed in the footsteps of Margaret Aiken, who we referenced earlier and who wrote for another famous Toronto newspaper so long ago. She's been described by those who know her as a force of nature, a high-energy and reliable player who gets the job done and makes sure that everyone around her has a lot of fun doing it. So, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming the Ambassador Vivian Berkovich to the Empire Club of Canada. Thank you, Gordon. It was uh, very touching. It's always interesting to hear someone speak about you. You never quite know what's going to come out, but that was good. Appreciate it. Um, good afternoon. It's so great to be here. So many people I haven't seen for two years, two and a half years since I left, and I'm so pleased you were able to come. And the people who I haven't had a chance to talk to and I don't know appreciate you being here as well. I'd like to, before I um, begin my remarks, my prepared remarks, I'd like to especially thank... Uh, Jerry Schwartz and Onyx, who have two representatives here today, for sponsoring this event and supporting the message that's in, that I'm delivering today. I'm not going to repeat the important people, the dignitaries in the room who have shown up and uh, who Mr. McIver so graciously acknowledged, um, because we already know that they're here. I was very privileged when I practiced law in Toronto, and I was here for almost 24 years practicing. And this club uh, was, a, was a venue that I frequented often. And it was an amazing opportunity, I always thought, because we were, you know, you kind of get away from the day-to-dayness of your job, and you have exposure to just an unbelievable range of figures, political, business, social, thinkers, leaders, fabulous. And to be included in that, uh, in that group is very exciting and makes me very, very proud. The timing of this talk, 
March break and the ice storm notwithstanding, which really kind of really wasn't that bad, was it? Um, really was very deliberate. Um, I'm here because, as Gordon McIver mentioned, Premier Wynne is going to be coming to Israel in uh, just under two months now. The dates are May 15 to 19. She's bringing a very large group with her, um, over 100 people. And we thought it was opportune for me to come over and speak to the Canadian business community, and there are many other people I'm also meeting with during the week that I'm here, to talk about what's going on there and why it matters to Canada. Premier Wynne, like many of her counterparts, her peers in other provinces, as well as Prime Minister Trudeau, understands that a sophisticated technological capability in all its facets, innovation and commercial viability, is absolutely critical for economic growth and competitiveness. And that is going to be the focus of her mission. This priority on technological innovation is also something that was addressed in the budget that the federal government uh, brought in two days ago, and there was an undertaking made to develop an innovation agenda, establishing Canada as a global force, and we await further details of that very important initiative. But if you want to make it in global tech and global innovation, you must be in Israel. Why? Well, as Gordon McIver mentioned, he stole all my thunder. Um, you know, everybody here, I assume, has heard of the Startup Nation. And if you haven't, go buy it. It's a business book. Uh, it was titled Startup Nation, which has kind of crept into, you know, sort of vernacular business talk, certainly in Israel and in America. It was an international bestseller by two gentlemen, Saul Singer and Dan Senor. And Dan Senor actually grew up in Toronto. I've met him since. I didn't know him when we were growing up two blocks away from each other. It's a page-turner. It's an amazing book. I think it was published about 10 years ago. And what it really attempts to do is kind of struggle to explain how this phenomenon occurred and why. Because it wasn't a sort of spontaneous combustion. It was very planned. And they look at the very unique social, political, geographic, and other factors that went into the pot that turned up or that, that created this great nation, this startup nation. Plucky little Israel. I hear that a lot from the British people, uh, diplomats in particular in, uh, in Israel. They like to call it plucky little Israel, which became renowned in its early decades for cultivating improbably the finest citrus fruit from desert sands. It's a cliche, but it's true. And, you know, if you go now, and many of you I know have been there recently, um, you, you go to parts of the desert that 20 years ago were absolutely desolate, and they're verdant. It's really incredible what's going on there. So first there was the citrus fruit miracle, and since the early 90s, a global, Israel has become a global tech innovation powerhouse, rivaled primarily by the United States and China. This little economic miracle in the Mediterranean, which contends, as you all know, daily with unimaginable security challenges. It's, you know, we always hear in Israel it's the size of New Jersey, but I'm in Canada, so I had to come up with a better comparator. It's the size of Lake Ontario, more or less. 8.3 million people. GDP per capita, $35,000 U.S. dollars. And here's a very telling fact when we're looking at tech innovation. In 2014, which is the latest number for which we have statistics, Israel <clears throat> excuse me, spent 4.1% of its GDP on research and development. Canada spent 1.6%. That means Israel was ranked number two in the world, and Canada number 19. That's only part of the story. And I want to, before I give you the next part, I'm just going to give you a little context for that, because you think, okay, because I was thinking, where is everybody else? Number one in the world for R&D investment is South Korea. Two is Israel, three is Japan, America's nine, and we're 19. In terms of the actual dollars spent, just the hard numbers, 
how much money. The stats kind of align more with what you would expect to hear. So number one, shocker, is the US. Two is China. Three is the EU. Four is Japan. Canada is 13. Israel is 22. So they obviously aren't putting in the same coin as some of the larger countries. So what does it all mean when you put it together? It means that if you want to support a robust economy with strong tech fundamentals, you have to invest hard dollars. But more than that, it also means that you have to ensure that your investment is tied to commercial viability. Because Canada is investing a lot more money than Israel is, and we're a big nation of 35 million people, but we're lagging in terms of technical, technological prowess. And we are now in a game of catch-up, a global game of catch-up, and we got to get in the game. We must assess our strengths and weaknesses very critically and quickly, and we must deploy our considerable resources and talents very strategically. We cannot waste time. Tech power is economic power, period. In the last few years, I've watched as other countries have focused and accelerated their national tech investment on partnering with and investing in Israeli ventures. South Korea, China, India, the UK, Australia, they're all over the place. For several years now, Israeli companies have represented the third largest number of listings on NASDAQ. Virtually all of those listed companies are tech companies. The third largest. Pause and consider that for a moment. Number one lister is the United States. Number two is China. Number three is Israel. So you put all of this information together, and I realize it's kind of 30,000 foot stuff, but nobody can still be sitting here and saying, so why do we want to be there? Why do we have to be there? Everybody's there. All of the tech giants are there. And even in the last two or three years, Apple just opened up a huge new R&D center. The last two years, we're seeing them pour in. Very significant um, Silicon Valley entities that have offices, one office in the world, but operate globally. The second office is in Tel Aviv or in the area. I mean, working in Israel, as many of you know, it's kind of like, it's so small, it's like working in the GTA. So even if they're not right in Tel Aviv, we say Tel Aviv. I want to just get a little more granular, though, for a moment. Um, Gordon touched on some of the incredible tech innovation, but I'm going to just focus very briefly on a few sectors. Water. I mean, this is a country that really is half desert, and the stuff that's grown there is incredible. Israel is a world leader in the use, reuse, desalination, recycling, you name it, of water, the most precious resource in that country. And they're working very closely now with the state of California and may just save them from their drought. So we're sitting here in Canada and it's like, well, who cares? We have so much water, you know, we could never run out of water and we have fresh water. It's fabulous. Well, it's about how you use the water. So, for example, I had a group from Manitoba um, who, they were business people, but they were very, very engaged in farming. And they're interested in taking Israeli water tech combined with satellite and heat imaging tech and applying it in some of the semi-arid areas of Manitoba. Halfway up the province, you don't have great soil, you don't have a lot of water, it's certainly not reliable, and you have a short growing season, obviously, and not a fabulous amount of sunlight. And you can take that water and other tech and you can apply it to that not terribly productive land. And in one year, you can probably go from a yield of one per acre to five per acre. So it's about how you use your water. It's not that, you know, you may have truckloads of it 500 miles away. Agritech. The Israeli agricultural industry is something you could go on and on for, for days, but I won't. I'm going to share one little nugget with you. We are privileged to have here today with us representatives from an Israeli, excuse me, agri-tech company, Energene, and the University of Saskatchewan. I believe they're in the room as well. These uh, two business partners, it's the University of Saskatchewan Global Institute for Food Security. Now, it may not sound so, you know, sizzling, but it is. 
They cracked the genetic code for the wheat genome. Okay? Now it gets better. Wheat, the wheat, wheat is the most widely used crop product in manufacturing food in the world. This project, which is very complex, there are, I gotta, I gotta read this, 164,000 to 334,000 genes in wheat, which is way more than there is in any one of you. We have 20 to 25,000. So the wheat decoding the wheat genome was very, very challenging. It was expected to take 10 years, and it was done in less than a month. So what? What that means is that scientists will be able to adapt seed and crop production in a wider range of environmental circumstances, and this will revolutionize food production globally. This will have an incredible impact on global food security, which is one of the biggest geopolitical challenges we all face. There are tremendous strides being made in food packaging. I know we have a number of people from the food industry here, packaged goods industry. One recent development I was reading about um, where you can take perishable goods and the food is coated with a special set of molecules. I have to read this. This is science. They create an electrical charge, neutralizing bacteria, and this packaging can keep the food germ-free for days or weeks without refrigeration or preservatives. It goes on and on and on. Medical and health treatment. Um, there was just an article in the, in the press a few weeks ago about some new bandage that basically you put it on and no longer is there any need for suturing or stitching wounds. Uh, there's another ultrasound technology that was just developed that allows surgeons to treat tumors and cysts without making an incision. And there was a video made of an Israeli neurosurgeon treating a professional violinist who had some brain tumors. And while this violinist was being operated on, I'm not sure that's the word, but we still say dial a phone even though we haven't dialed a phone in years. This person was being operated on with the video and playing the violin while the tumors are being removed. Incredible stuff. Cyber and space. You know, we talk about tech innovation as if it's some kind of siloed industry. It's not. Every tech innovation is applied to a different sector. But cybersecurity and space are two areas of application that most experts I've spoken to say really are the future, that the economy will be controlled in cyber and in space, the integrity of data, which is important to all the financial services people here and others, is going to be controlled in cyber and space. And that's really where the real economic competitiveness is going to play out. Israel is the second largest exporter in the world of cyber products and services. There are more than 200 companies producing and developing. It's also a leader in fintech, which many of you, I'm sure, are aware of. But we have very little fintech, Israeli fintech, being applied in our economy. And I had an interesting conversation two years ago with an executive from one of the big banks who said to me, you know, Viv, we spend billions of dollars a year. And we keep moving towards Band-Aid solutions and trying to fortify our systems. And we haven't gone to Israel just because we sort of don't know where to start. It's much easier for us to go to Palo Alto and Boston. But I think that what they're starting to realize, because I can tell by the inquiries that we're receiving at the embassy and the outreach that I'm doing, is that they can't not go to Israel any longer. They really have to go there because that's where the next generation solutions are being developed. There's a wonderful um, initiative that's now going on in the space cybersecurity world. It's a joint venture between Israel's Technion University, which is in Haifa, a northern city, and it's an internationally renowned science university, and the U University of Waterloo. And I'll keep this as simple as I can but it's described as the game changer. And it's the project that Laurier and Technion are working on will allow secure communications in space. And whoever can perfect this quantum physics puzzle first 
is going to have tremendous control over the global economy. This is what they refer to as the other race in space. There are very strong teams competing to get to the finish line. There's the Israel-Canada team, the USA, China, Japan, and Europe. Because of its increasing security, unceasing security challenges, Israel has a very effective military and defense capability and industry. No surprise. And it's also a major player in the global market for defense and aerospace products, which tend to commingle. And space expertise is a hugely important catalyst, stimulator of the cyber and tech innovation market and military. Space prowess isn't just about getting to Mars and the marquee events. Space is the new frontier for excellence and supremacy in all endeavors. And Israel, I've learned in the last little while, is one of the seven space powers in the world. We are not. The seven are the US, EU, Russia, China, Japan, India, and Israel. And in order to be a space power, you have to have three capabilities. You have to be able to build a satellite, communicate with a satellite, and launch a satellite. And we can do the first two, but not the third. Israel, of course, had to perfect this capability because uh, it can't have anyone else launch their military and other sort of top-secret satellites. They do have other countries launch some of their civilian-use satellites. So they had to develop this capability to launch a satellite in space, but it wasn't that simple because satellites, because of physics and gravity and all that stuff, they are launched going east. But Israel can't launch going east because the Arab countries won't allow their satellites to go over. So they had to figure out how to launch west, and they did. The only country in the world launching satellites west into space is Israel. Now, I know, I look, I love these anecdotal um, stories. I think they're interesting. I think they tell you a lot about a place. But there's a lot more to this than anecdote. I recently had the privilege of uh, being in a room where former Secretary of State George Shultz was speaking. And he was amazing. 94 years of age, just strides up to the podium, no notes, and spoke absolutely brilliantly for 20 minutes. And he shared an interesting observation with the room, including the Prime Minister of Israel who was present. And his recollection was of some very challenging meetings that he had in the late 80s when he was Secretary of State with the then Minister of Finance of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu. And together they understood that Israel acquired some very aggressive economic reform in order to deal with triple-digit hyperinflation, and a rather moribund, overly collectivist, state-controlled economy. Things were really bad. And Secretary Schultz credited Prime Minister Netanyahu's vision and resolve, then and now, in large measure, with facilitating the tech miracle that became the startup nation. As he recalled, it did not happen by accident. It was planned, encouraged with economic vision, fortitude, and incentives. And here we are today. I've been asked many times in my meetings with people on Bay Street this week, how did they do it? What mistakes did they make? There is a template. I mean, you can't, you know, it's not, Israel's much smaller and there are all kinds of differences, but there are many similarities. And they did a good job of executing the plan. There's tremendous opportunity for Canada in Israel and for Israel in Canada, but that's what I talk about most of the time when I'm over there. Add to just the the fact that the opportunity exists another very important fact that many people aren't aware of, and that is that the government of Israel is working very openly to diversify its trade risk exposure, if I can put it that way. Uh, About two years ago, 40% of Israel's trade was with, with the European Union, and there are concerns for many reasons that I expect most of you can surmise that that may be a vulnerability that they don't want to tempt. So they are looking very, very aggressively to diversify. And to date, the Far East has really come in and picked up the slack. And there's significant, significant trade and economic movement to the Far East. We should be in the mix. And we're not. 
We have pockets of investment. We have pockets of activity. Some of them are at the head table today. But we don't have near the representation and involvement that a country of our size and sophistication should. And we need it. We need a tech innovation sector that is thriving and strong. I'm often asked, what's it like to live and work there? And it's great. The weather's way better than here. <laughs> but the best answer I have is, again, it's another, it's a bit of a metaphor and it's a story. Um, because what I find about both ways, Israelis, it's very easy for them to go to America. They understand America. Everybody has family there. It's very strong ties between the two countries. And they just gravitate there naturally. They don't know as much about Canada. They know we're nice, polite, it's cold. Um, and some people speak French. <laughs> but they really don't know a lot about Canada. Nor do most people in Canada know a lot about Israel. And there's tremendous anxiety about what's it like there? Is it dangerous? I get to ask these questions all the time. But from a, in terms of just the culture, and this element of the culture applies to all aspects of living and working there. And it's what I call the Krav Maga metaphor. So a few months ago, I, I had the opportunity to go to this incredible new training facility where all Israeli police officers are trained. And they wanted me to come and see what they do. And it's a beautiful facility. Apparently, the boys from Quantico had been up a few months earlier, the FBI, and they, their jaws dropped. They, was just, they were like, we don't have anything. It's an incredible real state-of-the-art facility. And, you know, it was a really interesting day, and they take me and they show, you know, here's how we deal with terrorists, here's how we deal with... These are police, these aren't military. Here's how we deal with terrorists, here's how we deal with, you know, drug dealers and all kinds of... And they have this little campus where they have live demonstrations about how they manage these issues. They also took me into the Krav Maga room. And Krav Maga, for those of you who don't know, is a form of martial arts. It was developed in Israel. And... All Israeli soldiers and all Israeli police officers are trained extensively in Krav Maga. So it was, a really, it was fascinating. I have these six teams of, you know, instructors showing me various Krav Maga moves. At the end, I said to the leader, why did you feel, there's a you know, really long history of martial arts in the world. Why did you feel you had to reinvent martial arts? And he said, you know, we don't waste time on any of the fancy show moves. We don't do the high kicks and the jumps. We just get the job done. <laughs> and that's what Israel is like. They get the job done. Now, to Canadians going over, sometimes it may seem a little brusque and rough. They're very nice, but they just don't waste time. They do love our manners, though. Israel loves Canada. I hear this all the time, and they want us there. We're perceived to be friendly to Israel, polite, and blessed with everything they are not. Peace, security, lots and lots of natural resources, and land. Decades ago, when Israel was struggling with frequent and intense wars, not that it's a picnic all the time now, but it's different, and a very challenged agricultural-based economy. Former Pr Prime Minister Golda Meir was reported to have said, let me tell you something that we Israelis have against Moses. He took us 40 years through the desert in order to bring us to the one spot in the Middle East that has no oil. <laughs> there may be no oil, but recently, huge offshore gas deposits were discovered, which also present a tremendous economic opportunity and a tremendous opportunity for Canada because Israel needs help with extraction and distribution. And they're looking for help. Israel looks abroad frequently for international expertise to bring the best value to the many ambitious infrastructure projects which would make your mouth water if you saw their roads and bridges. There are many ambitious infrastructure projects being undertaken. And just last year, it was, uh, there were two big port contracts, were there not? I'm looking to Harrell because he's, he's the encyclopedia for all of this. Um, the Chinese won one bid and no Canadians participated. Why are we building the ports? These are really, really significant infrastructure projects. 
Commercial relations with Israel, so the trade and economic proposition with Israel is, like so many other aspects of that country, anomalous. It really is outside the box. We will never sell a billion TV sets there. We will never have a balanced trade ledger with Israel. That's just not the play. Commercial relations with Israel are all about leveraging Israeli intellectual property and capital with assets and resources in our economy to enhance our productivity and spur our growth. That is the opportunity. And we have to start to understand that here because most other countries are way ahead of us. To make our economy more productive, Western Europe, China, South Korea, Japan, and the U.S., they've all figured it out, and they're engaged there in a big way. Are politics an issue? You bet. But that's not what I'm here to talk about today. But the hard objective numbers tell a very good, consistent, and always improving story. And I just want to finish with this. Many of you who probably have been to Israel over the decades, and you'll remember in the 70s, you know, you went to Israel, you could drink Coke, you went to the West Bank, you got Pepsi, right? It was like you didn't, ne'er the twain shall meet. You could not get Coke and Pepsi in the same place. Those days are gone. So that's a very sort of, you know, thinly veiled comment. The old political concerns and worries really aren't what they used to be. The economies of the Middle East are pragmatic and there is tremendous opportunity for Canadian companies to get into Israel and really give our economy the tech kickstart it needs. Thank you very much. So the ambassador, ladies and gentlemen, the ambassador has kindly agreed to uh, answer a few questions. And uh, I have one that's been handed to me. But if you have questions that you're thinking of now, put up your hand and that uh, young lady at the back of the room will come and get them from you. Okay, uh, ambassador, the, the question that was handed to me is, could you describe like briefly, what are the objective parameters of the present day Israeli economy? I could. But Harel already said that he wants to, um, and I'm not going to mess with him. I could, I could describe them. Um, I am going to actually defer to Harel. Uh, Harel Locker, if you didn't catch it when he was introduced, he, he's a private investment advisor now, but he worked for four years until last August as the chief director general of um, the prime minister's office of Israel, and his primary area of expertise um, was to advise on economic matters. So Harel, would you mind... You can come up and... Okay, I wrote some notes uh, during your speech. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. First, I have to thank uh, Vivian for the great efforts to promote the relationship between the two countries. Prime Minister Netanyahu really appreciates you, and we all love you in Israel. Thank you very much. <clears throat> you know, when Gordon mentioned uh, the Queen of Canada, I was sure he was speaking on, <laughs> about Vivian. But somebody, uh, somebody told me I'm mistaken. So, but it, for us, you are the Queen of Canada. So anyway, uh, uh, you know, uh, I was a chief uh, of uh, economic staff of Prime Minister Netanyahu for four years. I came from uh, the private sector. Uh, I'm a lawyer, and I practiced law in Wall Street as well, and Prime Minister appointed me uh, from the private sector to the government. So I know, uh, you know, for four years I was struggling with all these issues of economy on behalf of the Prime Minister, and uh, I gave many speeches around the world to promote Israeli economy, especially in the East. And I think uh, Vivian uh, just described tremendously, and, and it couldn't be better, our economy. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm subjective. I'm not objective. So, you know, uh, uh, this is an excellent question because people might think, you know, it's a nice economy, a nice country, but there is a political issue and a vulnerability and not stable. So I want to share with you some of the objective rankings of Israel 
And as you will see, these are objective rankings of uh, uh, foreign agencies, uh, uh, which gives us uh, the best uh, rates and, and uh, uh, rankings uh, for a stable economy and a very robust economy. And no matter, uh, no, nothing else matters. I mean, all the politics, everything, nothing matters. Because when Moody's, uh, the ranking agency, says, uh, Israel, ranks Israel with A1, and Fitch with A, and S&P with A+, they know what they are doing. So it's uh, an objective ranking. It's not what I'm saying as an Israeli, as the chief economic staff for four years. It's not what your ambassador is saying. This is objective rankings. Inflation, one of the lowest in the Western world. Public debt, you know, Vivian mentioned this uh, program or this plan of uh, Mr. Netanyahu when he was the Treasury Minister. Today we have a debt versus GDP ratio, one of the lowest in the world, in, in the West, not only in the world. Unemployment, the lowest in the, in the West. Growth, even though there was a huge crisis in the West from 2008, we continue to grow, even in 2009, with figures of three, four, five percent. So, you know, we achieved the, the, the number one growth in the West in this uh, turmoil of, of, uh, of uh, economic turmoil of, of uh, the, uh, the worst crisis in the last 80 years. And foreign investments, you shouldn't believe me. You should believe your competitors, Chinese, Americans, Germans, Russians, Japanese. Indians, all of them invest in Israel. It's uh, the highest foreign investment per capita in the West. I mean, you have to remember, we're a small country of 8 million people, but $11 billion last year was the investment, foreign investment, direct investment in Israel. Now, all these competitors of Canada, they know what they are doing. The Chinese know what they are doing. The Americans for sure know what they are doing. And uh, I have to correct one thing, uh, Vivian, you know, because we are number one in R&D expenditure per capita. We, this is for 2014, but for 2015, we are number one. I stand corrected. So, <laughs> so, so you see with these objective parameters that this is a very stable economy, so nobody has to fear about all the political issues, about uh, vulnerability. You know, we went through crisis and nothing, nothing affected our economy. Oh, okay, it's your turn. <laughs> so thank you very much. And, uh, you know, uh, Prime Minister Danel used to tell me that I like to speak. Maybe another time. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Harrell. We'll, we'll have to have you back at the umpire club to talk to us. Uh, Ambassador, another question here. Do you see the BDS movement as having any impact, and what can or should be done to counter this movement? Good question. Um, I, I'm assuming that, you know, do I see the BDS uh, movement as having an impact on the economy? And the answer is a little complicated, but all answers are tough questions. BDS, for those of you who may not be aware, um, is the acronym for Boycott Divestment Sanctions Movement. It uh, is a movement that actually has its proud origins in Toronto, um, as does Israel Apartheid Week on campuses. And the goal of the BDS movement, which is not, an, it's a very amorphous grassroots kind of thing, um, but it is global in scope. And the goal, the stated goal of the movement is to uh, various forms of boycott, divestment, and sanction in various ways and in various places regarding Israel. And the intention is to send the message that, uh, and I'm speaking, this is what they say, not me, that the 
uh, occupation and, and circumstances associated with the occupation must be stopped. And that the best way to do this is to cause Israel to feel the economic pain. Um, BDS's last big push internationally was uh, with respect to South Africa when apartheid was there. And some BDS uh, activists have said, you know, Israel's, they, and they only, use, they only work on or focus on one country at a time. And BDS activists have said, you know, Israel is the perfect laboratory because it's such a nice little tight country, uh, very trade dependent, so you can immediately see the results, right? If you, if you push the levers, you're going to get kind of instant action. In Israel, um, you know, it's such a, it's such a moment-to-moment kind of place. Uh, there's a lot of long-range planning, obviously, going on, but it's also a very challenged environment. And I found, because I've been very focused on BDS for many, many years. I've seen it as a problem for a long, long time. And up until probably last year, most Israeli political leaders would have said BDS um, is a problem, but it's not a strategic threat for the country. And I think that that viewpoint is starting to change and that some of the more mainstream political thinking is looking at BDS differently and saying, this is getting close to being a strategic threat if it isn't already. In terms of the hard economic impact, measurable impact, there really hasn't been any, but that doesn't mean there won't be any. And I have to say that it's a concerning development But even more concerning than BDS is what uh, I think lies behind it. You can't have BDS without the delegitimization of Israel. And that is something that has uh, really gained traction globally over the last few years, last couple of decades in particular. And it's an idea, and it's about... The idea is this country is an egregious abuser of international norms, human rights, civilized society. And as such, they should be singled out for that, and often are. But what that idea does is it starts to set Israel apart, and it sets up an environment in which it's not just acceptable, to then use a tactic like BDS. But there's something wrong if you don't. There's something wrong with you and immoral about you if you choose not to support BDS because how could you not be outraged by what this country represents? You can't have BDS without delegitimization. And, you know, it was about three, four weeks ago um, when the motion was passed in our house by an overwhelming majority, and the numbers were something like 230 to 50. I knew them all a few weeks ago because I did a lot of media on it. And it was a very, very strongly worded motion in the House. Now, it doesn't have teeth, it's not law, but it's a statement of intent and moral clarity. And the motion, I don't have the words precisely in my head, but it was something like, We reject the BDS movement, we, the House of Commons of Canada, reject the BDS movement, and we condemn any organization or individual that supports it. Now, I'm sure you're all aware of the controversy that ensued, but that position with respect to BDS and delegitimization was very, very, very much appreciated in Israel across the political spectrum. Thank you. And um, I apologize, ladies and gentlemen, we're, we're a prisoner of television and, um, and uh, webcasting schedule, so we're not going to get to all of your questions, but let's take one more, because I think this is, this is on a lot of people's minds. Uh, certainly it was on my mind, and uh, this was just handed to me. Has the new Canadian government told you to change anything that you were doing in the past? No. <laughs> and if they had? No. Um, listen... <laughs> I, <laughs> you got to keep a sense of humor. Um, no, I, I continue to do my job as I've always done. 
And, uh, you know, there's obviously tremendous interest in Israel. Um, whenever the government in a country with which they have such strong relations changes. And they are very pleased to see the continued support and the continued comments, you know, from Ottawa, uh, from Prime Minister Trudeau, very unequivocally stating that uh, Canada is a friend of Israel and Canada supports Israel. I have not changed the way I do my job, nor have I been asked to at all. But thanks for the question. Thank you so much, Ambassador. And here, ladies and gentlemen, to express our collective appreciation is uh, the Empire Club of Canada's past president, John Campion. Ambassador, as um, one first approaches Jerusalem in the heart of Israel, one cannot help but feel the weight and glory of the ages and feel the heart beat of the people of the book. Jerusalem means the center of religious experience for the sons and daughters of Abraham, Jewish, Christian, and Islamic alike. You have been chosen to represent Canada in Israel, a country of such tiny size, huge significance and contrasts. You honor us by your presence. We have received your message of business, enterprise, and technology with interest and opportunity. As a personal matter, I asked the ambassador to be a contact for a young group of high school students visiting Israel at a time of danger. She not only was their guardian angel, I must admit it's the first time you've probably been put into the category of a semi-deity, but in your own mind I'm sure it's there. Um, (laughs) But not only did she take care of them, but she had them come to the Israel as part of the, to the embassy as part of their trip. Friendship and compassion are powerful factors that embody your work. Thank you for the um, personal care, and thank you for your energy, experience, and usual passion that you brought to our podium and your important speech today. Thank you. Thank you so much, John. And uh, thank you uh, as well to our generous sponsor today, Onyx, represented by David Mansell. Nice to have you with us, David. I'd also like to thank the National Post as our primary print media sponsor and Rogers Television, our television broadcaster. We also want to thank uh, MediaEvents.ca, which is Canada's online event space for live webcasting today's event, which, by the way, will be seen by up to a million people around the world. Follow us on Twitter at Empire underscore Club, and please visit us online as well at Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Please join us again. We have some extraordinary speakers coming up in the following weeks. We hope we'll see you out for some of these events. Uh, We have uh, Callan Ravinescu, President and CEO of Air Canada, stopping by in a couple of weeks on April 4th at the Arcadian Court. Interesting lunch on April the 5th, uh, Jan Westcott, the President and CEO of Spirits Canada, the Association of Canadian Distillers. We'll be here telling us the story of how Canada got to have the top whiskey in the world. And uh, in June, we have the Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin stopping by to talk to us about some of the important changes taking place at the Supreme Court of Canada. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for your attendance today. This meeting is now adjourned.